This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. On today's show, we have Dr. Edward Papenfuss, State Archivist of Maryland. Joining me in the conversation with Dr. Papenfuss is Bill Lefergy, Digital Initiatives Project Manager at the Library of Congress. In the 1980s, he worked with Dr. Papenfuss when Bill served as Baltimore City Archivist. I wanted to ask you about your early use of technology. In uh, 1970, you implemented a computer-assisted system of bibliographical control. In 1970, that's, that's before the popular widespread use of programming and technology. You know, that's pretty much for engineering types. So how did you first, what made you think that there, that was even a possibility? Well, when I came today, I deliberately parked out in front of 400 A Street, southeast, uh, southeast, I guess it is, right? Just behind the Adams Building, right? Uh, that was my first place of full employment. It was the American Historical Review, and I had been hired as editor bibliographer for the American Historical Review. And it was my job to oversee a, a series of a number of historians who had the responsibility of gathering together bibliographic information about recent literature in American history, European history, and this was all published in the back of the American Historical Review on a regular basis. And I was the editor charged with overseeing this operation. Uh, it was an extraordinarily tedious task, and it was something which uh, had not been automated at all in terms of bibliographic citation. We basically got in handwritten or typescript uh, bibliographic notices that each of these historians had gathered together from their reading of the literature, and then it had to be typeset, and then it had to be uh, edited and made sure that it followed a certain very specific pattern. So I got to know the publisher, uh, William Byrd Press in uh, Virginia, that published the American Historical Review. And they had a fellow who was working with them that uh, was a strong believer in electronic typesetting. He was also fascinated by the notion that much of what was being keyboarded for typesetting could also be retained electronically and managed as an electronic database. And so I said, well, as we're typesetting all of this and we're working our way through, we really want to accumulate these citations and we want to be able to have them as a retrievable, searchable database at some point in time. And he said, well, I think we can work towards that goal and we will save uh, the product of typesetting and try to move it into this electronic database environment. Well, we never got that far with the American Historical Review. What we managed to do was to produce, uh, if anybody knows anything about the technology, the whole concept of computers uh, really began with the weaving industry in France and 88 hole punch cards that really directed the needles that created tapestries, okay? And then in the night, late 19th century, this was moved into manipulation of, of numerical information. Uh, and ultimately, IBM comes out with its 88 hole punch cards, and that's where we put our data, and all that's fed into a mainframe computer and all the rest of it. Well, and the way in which the typesetters worked at William Burn Press was that you used Freedom Flex, Freedom Flexa writers, which generated a paper tape, 
and then that taper, paper tape was converted into using a mechanical typesetting device to create the type. Okay? That was converted into phototypesetting as opposed to linotype or metatype. Well, that whole concept of how when you keyboard something and you move it into a database really intrigued me. And so by accident and some of the work that I was doing at the uh, American Historical Review, it became my job to be a staff person for a group of archivists that were interested in expanding the National Historical Publications Commission into the National Historical Publications and Records Commission. That was headed up by a former archivist of South Carolina by the name of Charles Lee and a number of other people, including a really distinguished national archivist by the name of Leonard Rapport, who had always been uh, concerned about uh, the ways in which archivists were actually inventorying materials and how they were holding on to that. And he was a great lover of the WPA and the Historical Records Survey. So some of the first writing that I did and work that I did was to look at how these hundreds of people, thousands of people, were sent out across the land to inventory the record heritage of the United States, the inventories they were created, and then the question of how in a standardized way you could move all of that information into a searchable database environment. So I helped as a staff person, as this, doing the legwork, I helped draft the legislation for the R, for NHPRC. I helped find the congressman who sponsored it, who just happened to be the congressman from, from my district back home. And the legislation was passed to create this NHPRC, the R in NHPRC. Well, having gotten to know a number of these archivists and gotten to know an archivist in Maryland who I, where I did my research for my dissertation, I got a call one day asking me if I would be interested in applying for the job of assistant archivist of Maryland. That was in uh, 1973. I did. I was accepted. And when I arrived there, I asked myself, how can we move in the direction of bringing all of our finding aid material into a searchable, retrievable world? Uh, and we began with the notion that we needed to standardize our finding aids, we needed to bring them into a some form of, of electronic world that was uh, manageable, manipulable, and retrievable. Now, of course, there was no such thing as a web. There was no such thing as real networking. But we, the days of Spindex? Oh, this, this is actually, in fact, and to some degree, it was related to Spindex. I spent a fair amount of time talking with um, Frank Burke who was the, the father of Spindex, and who by that time had become, I don't want to telescope things, but he eventually becomes acting archivist in the United States. Uh, but my view of Spindex and the indexing was that it was trying to index before you had really good inventory and management control over your holdings. That you really had to be concerned about uh, how you applied the techniques of data management to a structured inventory environment. I wrote a, a very critical essay, probably one of the reasons why some of my librarian friends have not always been fond of my ideas. I thought the MARC format for manuscripts was a whoppingly overkill environment that really didn't go to the heart of how we could actually inventory and manage records. So I began thinking about structurally how you should inventory, how you should manage, how you should access records, and how you could do this in an electronic way. So we created, for example, 
a uh, a guide to uh, the uh, records of a, a group of family papers that I had managed to find. And I went back to my good friend who had been involved in this typesetting at, at, uh, at the Bird Press, Sam Delzell. I still have very fond memories of him because he was one of these people who saw the future. He saw this as being fully electronically managed and manipulated world. So with his help, we in, uh, actually invested in, at that point, uh, 3M Corporation had a, a unit that, that recorded everything you did on not the small floppy disks, but the large floppy disks, just to get back to this. So we put that whole finding aid and that whole process in a searchable environment on those floppy disks, but we also used the same floppy disk to produce hard copy phototype set uh, pages for the guide. All right? And my theory was that someday we'd be able to bring that electronic information into a much larger database searchable environment. Well, you have to fast forward. About 1990, uh, I began watching pretty carefully uh, something that was going on in California, uh, which was a little idea called Internet in a Box. I had a next-door neighbor who had spent a fair amount of time uh, developing a, an online analysis of the government of Florida. Uh, and he had retired on the amount of money that he made from that process, and he moved next door to us. And he came over one day and he said, Ed, you really ought to take a close look at uh, this little operation called Internet in a Box, because I really think this is the future of communication in this country. And, you know, all the things that you talked about, finding aids and being able to access collections, this seems to be a natural. So I said, hmm, all right. I bought my first computers. Uh, let's see, what was the first one I used? First one was a Radio Shack. Then I invested in an Osborne. Uh, I mean, we I invested in some of the, the playful technology that was going on as to how you might really manipulate and manage information. But I had an objective by the time my neighbor came next door, which was pretty much related to what he had been doing in Florida. And that was we were responsible for printing every two years uh, the informational manual for the state of Maryland because by that time I was archivist of the state of Maryland and one of our publications was the thing called the Maryland Manual. And the Maryland Manual was the Bible of state government. Every two years we put in a picture of every member of the legislature, they loved it. Uh, we put in an analysis of every state agency, we put in the expenditures over the course of the previous two years. This was the organizational structure of what government is and what government does for you in the state. And it was a publication that was being bought on a regular basis by every library. We exchanged with lots of libraries. It was sort of the standard Bible for what Maryland government. And it was costing an arm and a leg to compose it. Uh, there was not sustainable as a searchable ongoing environment. So I went to our technology fund and I said, and this was being administered by the Pratt Library at the time, I said, give me a grant for $60,000 and I will bring the Maryland Manual online through the concept of internet on a box. So for that $60,000, we bought our first server and we hooked ourselves into the fledgling internet and we brought that particular publication online. And so the point 1990? Yeah. 
1990-91. So that would be accessible by just Telnet reading a yes. command line? command line at that point. But we it was moving very rapidly. I think I you would probably understand the, the timing of things. I think we actually brought the Maryland Manual into a internet retrievable environment in 1994, if I remember the year exactly. So that's that's the point at which we were pretty close to looking and smelling like the way it looks today. All right. Well, that was the beginning. That gave us a, a start. Uh, the good news is that uh, at that point in time, just about let's see, it would have been late 90s. Uh, Maryland elected Paris Glendening. And Paris Glendening, as governor, had a chief of staff who was technology crazy. But he really didn't have a relatively good idea about how he was going to bring government into the Internet world. And we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And we offered some suggestions as to how uh, the state government should begin building a, an internet present for presence for all of its agencies, and so he got us a little bit of funding uh, to focus on bringing the message of what government is all about. We had uh, we were the first electronic capital uh, for the state of Maryland. Uh, eventually, this becomes a whole separate department. It's all being managed now by the executive office. We don't have a direct role in that except that the infrastructure that we created is an electronic archives and repository for all of these websites. Because part of, of looking at this from an archival perspective is you have to be concerned about the long-term care and preservation of that born digital information that state agencies are putting out about themselves, whether they be in websites or whether they be in, in government publications. So do you have historical records yes. going back yes we've done slice we've done slice in time for all state websites uh, for well over a decade and wow. a half now great okay um, all of it done within the context of very rudimentary and elementary HTML environments I mean, got there's some levels of sophistication that we certainly don't reflect where does this all lead what it what it means is that an archives a state archives needs to be the heart, the information repository of what government is all about, an accountable, authoritative place where the ongoing basic information of what government is and what government does will always be present and always be accessible, regardless of what the platform is, regardless of what the software access ideas are as you move through time. I can't say that we have fully achieve that. No place is able to fully achieve it. It's, it's a huge, uh, huge undertaking. But we have created a, a viable infrastructure within which to do it. And in the process of doing so, we've had to adopt a model of sustainability, which is probably unlike any other archives in the United States and probably in the world. And that is the fundamental argument that the point at which a document is born digital, if it has been determined through a process of appraisal that it is something that is a permanent record that should be sustained, 
the cost of sustaining it should come from the point of creation, not the point at which it's suddenly delivered to an archival repository. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. During the heyday of the real estate market boom in, in this country, the clerk's offices around the state of Maryland were becoming overwhelmed by having to record the paper of new mortgages, new purchases, and in fact the backlog in each of the clerk's offices was running to three, four, and sometimes six months for recordation of that information. So the judiciary, which manages that in Maryland, not every state is managed, it manages it through the judiciary, realized it had a real problem on its hand and decided that they were going to automate the whole process. All right. And so what they did was they put a contract out on the street. It's an interesting phrase. <laughs> what they did was put an RFP out on the street, and, and what they asked for was for you know private entities to bid on creating an electronic archives of land records. We were fortunate at the Maryland State Archives in that the chief judge of the Court of Appeals is also the chairman of our Hall of Records Commission, which is responsible for oversight of what the archives does. So I went to the chief judge and I said, we can do it for at least 20% cheaper than what all these private companies are telling you you can do, and the end product is going to be a permanent digital record that will be sustained uh, at the Maryland State Archives at state expense, which is really what you want. You do not want to alienate the public record into private hands. He liked the idea, and we proposed that we scan, index, and provide access to every land record in Maryland going back to uh, 1637, which is the earliest one we have, put them online, make them accessible for the real estate industry, uh, but to do so by charging, taking a very small percentage of the fee that was already being charged for recordation. So that every time you bought a house, every time you mortgaged a house, every time you filed something, $25 of that fee went into a fund. And out of that fund came the money for sustaining this project. So over the course of four years, with $35 million from that fund, we created one of the best electronic archives in the country and continue to receive a fee for sustaining and, as it grows, more recordations are added, sustaining uh, that electronic environment. Well, what that allowed us to do was to create, through economies of scale, a fairly significant operation into which we could also bring additional record material at less cost. So we have basically used the approach of, here's an essential record of government and of something that the public needs in an electronic form. They're willing to pay and have to pay by law a fee to get it started. Make sure that that fee also includes keeping it alive and accessible over time. So we're using the principle of, if something's born digital and it has permanent value, the point at which it is created is the point at which you get your first income for keeping it that way, and you have a means for sustaining it over time. Um, that has been 
the saving grace of the Maryland State Archives. So, so you were able to prove that up front. You were able to do the numbers, yes. crunch the numbers, yes. and prove that you could save this, make it for 20% cheaper. Yeah, I estimated 20%, and I was really right on the money, actually. We also did something else, and that is we did not pitch our storage environment to the most expensive. We pitched our storage environment to probably the middle range. In other words, uh, I'm trying to remember the, I, we probably shouldn't mention specific firms anyway, but uh, there were a whole set of suppliers out there that were pro providing very high-end storage devices that were really quite expensive. And we actually looked to a system that was, uh, we used the pr principle of monitoring and turnover rather than relying, if I put it this way, if you knew that a hard, you could buy a hard drive that it was guaranteed to last for 10 years. Instead, you bought a hard drive that was guaranteed to last for three years. All right? And what you really were looking at is the replacement and how you replaced and how you migrated. Okay? So as a result, I think we built a, a system that was not anywhere near as expensive as some of the, the systems that could have been built at the time to do essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we also did something else. We like to think we anticipated Google. Uh, we created a distributive system. Uh, we believed that uh, this a single central repository of the electronic record was just simply not the future of sustainability in terms of the life of the record that you really had to have two and probably three places at minimum where you had absolutely everything, the same thing being stored, everything being checked against each other to make sure you didn't have my, you, you got it. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you your business, so I don't mean to, to intrude on it. But the point is that we, we really did think through the question of how can we, from a physical standpoint, sustain what we've got, move it from platform or True, change over time, it's a lot of at, the same, at the same time looking at it in terms of of what the costs were and how we were going to fund those costs. So you talked about, uh, you gave your example Born Digital from a land use perspective. Yes. Now you're, you're, the State Archives is, to say the least, incredibly complex in terms yes. of the, the, the resources that it offers right. and how it's interlinked, yes. how things are interlinked. Can you talk about the, the planning of that or did it just grow organically? Well, lots of things grow just like, as they used to say, based upon uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, grow like Topsy. Um, but also, there was a certain amount of planning involved. I mean, what you're, what you're constantly trying to do is to be certain that you are forever integrating what you do. And that, that's, that's extremely difficult. Uh, that, what's the best way to explain this? The biggest problem that archives face, or any research institution faces, is that the people who use them know more about the records than the people who manage them. That's just always the case, because you have someone who comes in and then does in-depth research and finds the connections and goes away and writes the masterful book. But usually that information is not pulled back into the finding aids or into the understanding of the records. So one of the, and, and that, that model is a problem all the way along. You need to be forever looking at how you can be constantly adding value and understanding 
to the records uh, that you are the custodian of through whatever your finding aids are, whatever the way in which you capture what other researchers do with the records. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to say that I have any solutions. We keep attempting to focus on how efficiently and effectively we can integrate our knowledge and others' knowledge of what records we have to keep the notion that we have to be constantly explaining value. You know, I've got three warehouses outside of our current building. We ran out of space in our current building in in the year 2000. Uh, We've got three substandard commercial warehouses that are filled chock-a-block full with, again, as much material as we have in our present building. Uh, The question that anybody would ask is what is the value of all of this paper? How do you convey the importance and the ongoing value and utilization that can be made of what you've got sitting there in the warehouse? If you don't do that, if things go against you over time. Uh, people say, what if you're keeping all... It's like, you know, what do you like my mother used to say about some of the things that I say, what on earth are you saving all that junk for? Okay, what's its value? What does it have? And so one of the big problems that archives face is making sure that they have an integrated program that is forever enlarging the understanding of the value of what they're caring for. So getting back to systems design and how you do that. If you don't have a good centralized cataloging system that allows you to constantly be adding understanding and value to what you have. If you don't have, if I go all the way back to where I started with the, the bibliography that I was concerned with, if, if you don't have a means of capturing in a systematic and very uh, structured way the information about what you have, adding to it now, fortunately, the images of what you have, if it's in paper or born digital, the images themselves, and you don't have that within a really good finding aid environment, it's self-defeating. So you're talking about curation. You're talking about curation, curation. standardization and curation. But but you're also, uh, one of the hardest things to get across to my colleagues and to uh, staff is that in order for archives to survive in this world, we're going to have to share uh, what we have and allow input coming to us uh, from outside the framework of our existing institution. Linked data. Right. Uh, the, the best example recently of what I mean by that is uh, taking a look at what uh, oldweather.org just got in the way of enormous publicity for their efforts to uh, document global warming through the analysis of ship logs around the world huge article in the New York Times showing up in practically every major newspaper in the country and basically what they're basically saying is we need to enlist people in the cloud to help us transcribe the data so that we can actually document uh, when that ice cap began to melt or you know whatever happened. So as a sort of anecdote uh, to all of this, when I first read the article I was really struck by it because it it was a, it, it's a concept that we've been working with in a little project which I call editonline.us, which you can take a look at. It's, it's really rudimentary. It's something that George Mason University has got a fairly significant grant to work with right now. 
which is how do you involve people in the cloud in transcription and in analysis of documentary material. If you sort of step back for a second, and I'll I'll talk about oldweather.org because that pulled me into it. I said, well, gee, I want to take a look at this. And in fact, this week from today, we were talking with the developers in Oxford and in, in Spain who did the front end work on this as to just, you know, mechanically, structurally, how did they go about doing this? Because there are some elements of this that I'm very intrigued by. But be that as it may, I, I went onto their site, I signed up for it, and I got the names of the people who were the principal investigators. And I wrote them and said, I really would like to talk with your developers and learn a little bit more about this. I'm interested in how you're sustaining it, where you're keeping the, the, the files, and you know how you're going to be holding on to this over a long period of time as well as the mechanics, literally, of the, how they set up their transcription model, because it's very clever. I mean, it's very easy to transcribe within this, because they have a very focused as to what they want you to put in and how you go about finding it. And I just said as an aside, and by the way, if you're going to be doing this with the Royal Navy logs, you really ought to look at whaling logs, because one of the best ways of getting really incidental information from very obscure places on the seas is from the logs that whalers kept as they were going out, uh, you know, whaling all over the Pacific and, and, and the North Atlantic. And I said, and by the way, I just happened to be involved in, in scanning all the whaling logs of the Providence, Rhode Island Library because they needed a place where they could get their microphone scanned. And as a part of what they approached us saying, you have the facilities to scan microfilm. And uh, the American Antiquarian Society tells us that you do it relatively inexpensively. How much would you charge us for scanning our whaling log film? I wrote back and said, uh, we will scan it at our $60 a real price as long as this is done in the context of our being an alternative storage site for the website that you're putting up. So that you're basically making sure that you have a backup environment and that it is really done within the context of our electronic archives, and our charge is going to be roughly $250, $300 a year for just simply that matter of story. So this isn't going to cost your library much of anything, but I think this is a good model. So they said, oh, that's fine. We'll go ahead and do this. We scanned all the film. I put it up on a website. In fact, we bought a domain name for them. It was called rj5site.net. Now... If you know what I used as my call letters, I used OCLC's designation for the Providence, Rhode Island Library, just so that there was some sort of model going on here for doing this, all right? So we put the website up. They put the website up. Their website looked exactly like our website. It was just basically in two places. You got to one by my domain name. They got to theirs by however they did it through the library, but it was exactly the same. Fine. So I send this off to these people. And I immediately get a note back saying, that website doesn't exist anymore. And I said, what? So I go and look for the Providence Rhode Island website, and it's gone. It's not there. Can't get to the whaling logs. So I write the fellow, wrote the fellow back and said, well, at least for another year, because they paid for it, it's actually going to be there much longer. It's existing at this domain name. Go ahead and take a look at it. So he goes and does that. He's really happy because he finds that they bought not only logs for whalers, but they also bought logs for two ships that were crushed in the ice uh, in an Arctic expedition in the 1880s that nobody knew still existed. So that proved to be useful to him just from that standpoint. But what happened was 
Providence, Rhode Island Library decided that, uh, well, the fellow who ran the project went to another library. Okay, so you lost your head. They decided to give it to Brown University to try and get the site to keep it going, and their technology department had left too. So nothing. Okay, so the only thing that exists left, well, again, this gets back to this business of back at base. What are we all about? What should we be doing? How should we be doing it? All right? Uh, there is a whaling log archives of a whaling log collection that there should have been thought given to its sustainability and its management over the long run. Which you had. Which we did, which is sort of still which there. You had, which you had. Which we did. Yeah. But it's not part of the fabric of what it really should be. Now, let me back up and say something. Providence Rhode Island Library could get around dealing with this problem by turning it all over to archive.org. Okay? Uh, because that is one way in which you can do and that's fine. But the point is you need a plan. You need a place. So the other side of this anecdotal story is, of course, the, the fact that they did define material within this collection that they hadn't thought about accessing. That in whaling logs per se, yes, but there were also logs in this collection that weren't for whalers. They happened to be an Arctic expedition that one of their scientists was extraordinarily keen on and thought the logs had been lost on. So it gets back to the sharing of information and how we deal with this as well as setting up an environment that there can be an interaction between those who know and those who don't know to continue our knowledge base of what is the value of what we've got. There is something I wanted to ask yes. about related to that, uh, and that was your research in uh, yeah. England and France. Right. It was right. Maryland-oriented. Right. Do you have any plans to tie yes. your website with theirs in some way so that researchers can cross-research, start out on your website and end up yes. researching related things in there? I would very much like to establish a very close working relationship with the British National Archives and in particular in relationship to the vast collection of material that they have uh, relating to the activities of the British Navy and the prison system in Great Britain during the War of 1812, just as an example. Okay? Because uh, what they have in their Admiralty series and what they have in their Dartmoor prison series contains extraordinary information about people who were in the maritime services in the Chesapeake during the period from 1809 to, to roughly 1815. The ideal world would be one in which we cooperate because the information that's there is extraordinarily valuable to understanding the Chesapeake region in that period of time. If we could link the two together and have a together have a research rich environment in which people who are using it there are feeding in and we're aware of it and people who are using it here are feeding into it and they're aware of it, uh, we would both be the better for it. Now the British National Archives, interestingly enough, has pioneered in dealing with uh, my private archives as related to research. So you, you can go to the British National Archives, you can do your research, keep track of what you deal with in their collections but they have no conceptual framework of integrating that information into their finding aids or into 
this other side over here where they have their listing of what records they have. So if I, if I put a, a fine point on it, um, during the war, a large number of ships that were, some people call them privateers, some call them pirates, uh, some people just say that they're just extensions of the American Navy with letters of mark, but they basically went out on the high seas with cargoes that often the British captured and took them in as prizes into London. Uh, they include the ship's logs. They include all of the information about the sailors who were aboard them that has oftentimes have mailbags associated with them that uh, included correspondence that was being carried on the ships, all of which is of extraordinary value to understanding the maritime history of the Chesapeake Bay, just, just to go in that. So if the work of analysis of scanning of explaining that series is done in conjunction with the finding aids that the British already have relating to that series, we have access to it and then perhaps even share the storage of that information. We're both the better for it. How do you achieve that? It's very hard to do. Right. Right. How much does your website benefit from the input from the general public? Well, that's a very good question. Not as much as we would like. I mean, we encourage people to tell us about what they find. We encourage people to question us about how we might do things better. But we really don't have a truly well-designed, interactive way in which they can do that in a very specific record-oriented way. Uh, and I think that's that's really more what I'm talking about. I, As I said, I've, we have set up a test website called editonline.us which is basically uh, taking images of record series, placing them in a PDF, because that's what the delivery side of it is, and giving uh, the individual who signs in and qualifies, in other words, is allowed to do so, to actually transcribe. All right? What that means is that the textual information then is incorporated into the search engines related to that series of records. And so you're one step further towards actually being able to access that information, at least in a free-flowing text environment. Uh, you can apply the same sort of thing to uh, uh, the more detailed uh, analysis of records. Take, for example, I'll use the model of what I've done with all the Bill's work. Uh, up to about, when did you leave the bonus of the archive? 1985. Up to about eight, 1987. Uh, an enormous amount of extraordinarily good work was done uh, in analyzing the records of Baltimore City. Okay? And it was all done on paper. It was all done on TypeScript. It was done within the, within the construct of uh, the record group system of, of, the, of the National Archives. Now, there were some WordStar files that had the early um, yes the guy yes I, they, I don't know if they no I know last. exactly what happened that computer was stolen out <laughs> of the terminal warehouse okay when they were actually uh, no, no joke stolen stolen literally and they, they, it was all maintained on one computer and a series of floppy drives that yeah, were related which, to which it. I acquired for that's the right place. and you know the old well but this this is all relevant so the only thing that's left is the paper. Right. Okay. 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 That's all that's left is the paper. So what we basically did was move all of that paper, still keeping the structure, into a searchable text environment. 
so that anybody wanting to know the way the records were organized and what was available at least was text searchable through all the finding aids you did. Okay? Then the next step, we retained your organizational structure. Now, you all did something which I wouldn't have done, okay? But that doesn't matter. What you did was you, take, you took all of the historical record survey chronologically organized and described records, pulled them apart and put them into record groups, okay? What we're doing, we left them in record groups, but because there are text descriptions that are in those, in those HRS analyses, we're allowing those to be brought back in to the series unit descriptions under the record groups mm -hmm. so that they are also searchable as well. Now, where does this go? This goes, that doesn't have to be done on site. We allow people to come into trusted editors, mm -hmm. but they can be anywhere. They come into what are called virtual machines and they have access to the text that they're incorporating, to the series unit descriptions that are in the master guide, and they bring the two together. Very good. All right. Now that is what I'm talking about: bringing outside volunteer, whatever it may be, help and actually doing the job of inventorying and adding value to what you have. Now I'll go one step further: if you have it set up in such a way that you can allow people to <clears throat> tell you more about why those records are important, all right? Every series has a description, and you, you set the structure up so you know what I'm talking about. You've got a, a, every record group has a full historical analysis of what it is and why it's important. Administrative history. That's right, and that's exactly what archivists should do. But since that time, there have been a lot of good secondary works that relate to those records whose reference points need to be inserted into those general descriptions. So you set up an environment whereby your knowledgeable users can feed into that. Now, yes, you need an editorial interface. I want to be very careful. It's not truly a full Wikipedia approach to things, but it is along those same lines. Now, this is the only way in the long run that archives can really survive as viable institutions. We will never have the personnel will never have the resources to do anything more than be managers of others who are, in fact, willing to help at different points in time within the electronic system that we create. So access. Access, access. is the key. That's right. Access yeah. is the key. I, it's, uh, but it's, you know, it's an uphill struggle. If I come back to the, uh, the fee structure environment that we're in right now, any monies that we're earning at the Maryland State Archives, by law, because we got the law passed first, have to be plowed back into the archives. But in these days of tight budget environments that are getting worse by the moment, it only takes an act of the legislature to change all of that and to take it all away and to re-disassemble the apparatus. And so, yes, we're concerned about that as well because it gets back to you have to keep convincing the organizational structure of what you're a part of is that what you do is of such value that you need to continue to get that kind of uh, income to support it. Looking ahead, where do you think, you've talked a little bit about the sort of interaction and enriching 
information about holdings and so forth to mutual benefit. If you're going to expand your vision in terms of what's going to be happening with digital materials of of historic value, of archival value, where do you think this is all going? I mean, particularly looking at born digital materials. Mm -hmm. We we need much more in the way of uh, shared repository responsibility. And we need it, and, and the place where we should be getting it from initially are from the academic library environment. Uh, in the academic institutions. Uh, one of the things that we've been, and we've done that, to be perfectly honest. I mean, that's what we've done. And in order to create our second site, uh, we took advantage of the fact that the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, really wanted to be the premier digital research entity. And they had a very fine uh, geography department that was headed that way. They the biosciences, they're just very knowledgeable about, and they have a very forward-thinking president of the university. So we approached College Park, and College Park is building a huge new campus for the storage of material, but they had very clear ideas about how they were going to fill that up themselves, and there wasn't, and they were friendly, but there just wasn't the kind of willingness to look at, well, wait a minute, the shared activity here might be a benefit to both of us. UMBC saw it differently. And so we got an extraordinarily good contract with regard to space and place. Well, if the whole university system and all of the uh, university and college libraries that are within that system worked within a shared cloud storage environment, literally dealing with that, we would then have a place of permanence and sustainability for uh, Mm -hmm. this material. Now, I know that archive.org is trying to sort of do this Independently in a quasi nonprofit sort of way, uh, and Jerry Hanfield. Oh yes, yeah. no, and as you know, we've got to get that's it, yes. and that goes to the next. I mean, the, all of the state archives probably could work within a shared resource environment. Right. Uh, the hurdles that you have, of course, is getting over your own individual state environments. That's what they were, the archivist from Indiana was talking about. Right. right. So the vision, the vision is that. The educational institutions in this country, with a great deal of money and a great deal of resources, uh, we give an awful lot of lip service in Maryland uh, to the importance of sustaining our higher education environment. And at the heart of an effective higher education environment is reliable and accountable and authoritative information. So we've got to keep pushing the notion that it isn't going to be the small state archives that is going to be the storage place. We've got to think of it in terms of a much bigger uh, environment in which it's a natural way in which the information flows. That doesn't mean we don't have our facilities. That doesn't mean we don't be, we aren't a part. But we've got to be a part of the larger one. That's why we got together. You said that you need to prove value yes, to the state fine. legislature. Or well, that you've got lots of constituencies you have to prove value to. What's one way of proving value to? Well, one of the ways that you can prove value is if you are the ultimate place and depository of all the proceedings of the General Assembly, you become a natural adjunct and library, so to speak, or archives for the General Assembly. Same thing is true for the Executive Department. We're not there yet, but in our state, for example, uh, we have a very forward-looking governor who has brought to the state his concept of city stat, which is what he now calls state stat, 
which is an effort to create predictive models of what the problem, public policy problems are that the state is facing, where they exist geographically throughout the state, and what should we be doing about them. So if you were, for example, just taking the question of transportation, okay, and looking at uh, where the bridges were deteriorating, well, where are they located? Okay, what federal money do we have to be asking for? What are we responsible for on our on our own? Or more to the point, if you're looking at healthcare issues, where does population in relationship to the distribution of of uh, facilities for healthcare? How how should that be managed from a, a state standpoint, health and mental hygiene standpoint, or schools? Okay, wait a minute. Maryland is very much involved in capital construction of schools. We have a centralized capital construction program. So, I mean, where are the population issues that we have to deal with? What facilities are deteriorating? What is needed? Where are they needed? All of this is, is a born digital or pulling in information into a digital environment to try to do on-screen analysis. Or, well, you just do it for the day that you're studying the, this project? Or do you have this in a context of a massageable, reusable importing environment? So you... If archives is successful in, consider, in being considered as being at the heart of basic information services for government, that's what I'm talking about, adding value, making sure that it's understood that, it, that it's a critical instead of esoteric. Um, I had a call this morning from the Speaker of the House. Okay? Uh, he's a great guy. I'm very fond of him. The he, Maryland he, House? Yeah, Speaker yeah. of the House. And, and it happens every year, today's opening session. I should have been prepared for it, as I've had done it. And he calls me up, and he specifically asks for certain historical facts or reviewing historical facts that he's putting into his introductory remarks for the General Assembly this year. Okay? Now, he perceives of us in that regard, me, but it's, we're talking about the institution. We're not talking about Ed Pavlovich. We're talking about the of of a place where you always go for certain reliable, accountable information, and that it is important to state government. Just at that moment, it happens to be uh, his way of introducing uh, what the legislature is going to be doing this session. But you, if we can work our way into government that way, and I've come back to Baltimore City. This is one of the things that's been really very interesting. For Since you left, uh, what really happened was that the whole archives was dumped into uh, a warehouse up on... Uh, Druid Hill and just basically forgotten about. Okay? Deterioration everywhere. Uh, and not only within the city agencies, they just stopped sending stuff, right? Okay? Because there was no records management program. All right? Now, just within, since September 1st, all right, planning, transportation, uh, general services, public works. Now, those are huge agencies as far as the city is concerned. Oh, yeah. Just forget the mayor's office. They're already interested in it. They've Revived. Oh well, we've got to send our permit. We've got to follow schedules. We've got to bring permanent records back in. That's good news. It's value. Yeah. All right. So if you get back to uh, what a what an archives has to do at the state level, we have to do the same thing as what we're doing reviving at the city level. We have to make it clear that we have to be a part of state agencies envisioning how they hold on to their own collective memory and how they access information from the past that is directly relevant to what it is they have to be doing on a daily basis. 
the electronic world creates a problem for us because many state agencies, many agencies today believe they can do this all themselves within their own IT departments and have no real concept that in just entrusting IT people to keep yourself alive forever is not going to be the answer uh, for effective information management over a long time. Uh, they learn the lesson too late. They find that they can't read their tapes anymore. They can't get to X, Y, and Z. So part of the challenge of the electronic world today is making people who are directly engaged in government aware of the fact that they need a central or at least a distributive electronic archives environment over which they don't necessarily have full and total control. They're partners. All right? I, what I think is quite fun and interesting is that there's one agency of the federal government that has figured that out and has done wonderfully on it, but just nobody knows about it, and that's the CIA. Uh, I've had the privilege of, of, of speaking to their records managers. and Oh, they have a very strong records program. Oh, they have, and yeah. because they understand, okay, I mean, in miniature, they're doing everything the federal government ought to be doing. I wanted to ask you, as a, well, as the commissioner of land patents, yes. as a scholar of maps, a, histo- a map historian, over the past few years, I guess about the past five years, there have been enormous developments in geospatial technology. Yes. How does that affect you? The whole question of a sense of place and an understanding of place is critical to the well-being of the nation. And what geography, for example, what Google Earth has done for us, and I'll just use that as sort of one of the models, is that you can now, in a very real and in a very fast pace, get a sense of where you are or where you want to go or what you want to know about somewhere else. All right? uh, and that, that notion of going back to mapping place and how all of the various means of how we've mapped where we are and what we are can really be brought together into a virtual world of access and electronic world is is stimulating, it's fascinating. Uh, the, I, I was introduced to uh, Google's layer, layering of historical maps by a very good friend of mine who uh, just simply had been playing around with the, with the two different formats that you can use in order to take historical maps and put them on onto Google Earth. And what we discovered was that if you took, uh, I'll, I'll just use one small example. Uh, when Captain John Smith came up the, the Chesapeake Bay and uh, on his second voyage in 1608, he visited a couple of rivers uh, up in the, the northern section of the bay, including uh, one in Cecil County, uh, and he identified an Indian village, right? And this is a narrative form. Uh, he put a star on his map, all right? But there was this discussion of, of, of his having visited this place. About 50, no, excuse me, 68 years later, a relatively mad bohemian by the name of Augustine Herman uh, created a map of the same area, all right? And he placed on it villages of local Native American tribes. 
And the area that was probably in the best detail was the area in which he got an enormous land grant, a patent, which is one of my responsibilities, from Lord Baltimore. I was asked to speak at uh, a on one of these events of called the John Smith Trail, which was the, a water trail taking people through the Chesapeake Bay to places where John Smith had visited, and they knew that John Smith had come into the area. All right, so I began looking at first of all Smith's narrative, and looked at Augustine Herman's mapping of the same area, and I took a section of Augustine Herman's map the actual map. Now, the Library of Congress has a, a wonderful copy of the map, which they digitized and which is available online. So I simply took the section of the map off of the digital version that was here, uh, available online, placed it on Google Earth on that section of where I was speaking, and said to the accumulated masses of about 50 people who were at this uh, uh, talk that I gave that this is John Smith's narrative, this is what he said he found, and 70 years later, along comes, or roughly 70 years later, along comes Augustine Herman, and he mapped it. He showed this as being right here. Now, when I placed this on Google Earth, this is where the uh, longhouse of that, those Native Americans were supposed to have been in your neighborhood. It's supposed to be only a few hundred yards away from the church where I'm speaking right now. Now, I don't know if this is the case, but that's what it looks Some guy in the office lifts up his hand. He said, it turned out to be the state archaeologist. He said, we've been digging in that area. That, with the way you placed Augustine Herman on Google Earth in the way in which you related the rivers as he showed them and everything, and you, you just sort of rubber-sheeted it, you're within 60 feet of where I've been digging, and that's where I actually believe we found the longhouse. What I'm trying to get at is that geographical information can be pulled into this virtual reality world in a lot of really wonderful configurations that gives you a sense of the history and change over time. Uh, Baltimore City's got a wonderful opportunity, which we're trying to get grant money for right now. The Sanborn maps work exceptionally well on Google Earth's base map. And you can do layering of the Sanborn maps to show changes in neighborhoods. With very, and Philadelphia has done a little bit of this, so I'm not... I've got to be very careful. None of these are necessarily my ideas. These are things that I've had... No, not at all, but I'm, I'm curious yeah. about how you, in your right. various roles, as a historian and a scholar and someone who's aware of which way the technology is going, what plans do you have? You know, how Well, you I, I, I'll try to... I mean. We cannot afford and never have been able to afford uh, ArcView and some of the very sophisticated kinds of, of mapping systems. All right? I've always been envious, but you just can't, this is something you just can't afford to capitalize and invest in. We don't have the resources to do it. But as the technology has advanced and the way in which I watch things happen, it's clear that some of these tools to do this are being made available in very inexpensive ways. How did I get there? I got there from the standpoint of being commissioner of land patents or at least being engaged in looking at how land came to be surveyed, managed, sold over time. All right, so when I came to the archives, I knew very little about cartography. I knew nothing about surveying, uh, but I got very interested in 
one of my roles, which at that point was to be Deputy Commissioner of Land Patents, because I was came in as Deputy Archivist. In Maryland, all land titles have to go back to an original land grant. If they don't, the land is vacant, and the state has the right to sell that land. That's just the fundamental basic premise of, of ownership of land in the state. It's qualified by lots of things, but that's the way it works. So... I got interested in how land came to be parceled out, surveyed, and mapped. And the more I got into it, there's an interrelationship between surveying that was done of particular pieces of property and the great map makers like Lucas or others who, who did general maps of the area. Dennis Griffith's map of Maryland is a perfect example of that. He was a combination of a surveyor and somebody who realized that a generalized map of the state was really uh, something that was needed, or he thought he lost his shirt on it, so he was wrong. But the, 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 point, the, the point is, okay, so, so what do you do? You sort of, you, you look at how can what you have in the way of cartographic knowledge be married with the technology that's adv- being advanced with regard to understanding place on the earth, where you are? what it is, what it consists of, geography, geology, whatever it may be. And I live in a fortunate age. I live in an age in which uh, it's clear that you can marry the historical evidence uh, with the current uh, need to know and to understand the face and the contour in the world as, it, as you do it electronically and pull those together. And as are, there are other people who are interested in that, we take advantage of it. That's Easily, too. Yeah, I mean, that's, Easily, that's, that's what, what, what it is. Now, you couldn't do this uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. So, and some of what we're able to do is, is driven by others, by other reasons, okay? And then archivists step in, if they're smart, and take advantage of them. It's like Internet in a Box. We go all the way back to where I began, okay? You know, we were offered as purveyors of information, we were offered an extraordinary tool to improve the accessibility and usefulness of archives when the Internet came along. Were you the first state archives on the Internet? As far as I know, but I'm sure there's somebody who will uh, <laughs> want to dispute that. <laughs> no, no. No, no, no. Well, be careful. I, I, you know, uh, I sufficiently bored you sitting <laughs> Fascinating, all of it. Thank you so much. No, it's, it's been a pleasure. Dr. Papadvius, thank you very much for your time and for all the information. Well, it's been a pleasure being with you. Nice to see you both, so thank you. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.